Good morning. Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all of their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up on their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. We instinctively think of our lives in this world as a story. And every good story has conflict. The very best stories are always full of struggle, but also some kind of triumph over the struggle. Now, that's the story of your life, isn't it? You have struggles, and you're looking, you're hoping for some kind of triumph or redemption or victory over the struggles in your life, but it's not easy. Here's the big question this morning. How do you face those struggles? Especially your struggle with evil. Evil that opposes you, that assaults you, and tries to suck you into it. A huge part of our story is our struggle with evil. How do we face that? For some of you, especially if you're maybe exploring faith, um, you may be skeptical that you even have a struggle with evil. Or, or maybe even offended that I would suggest such a thing. That's one of the main reasons this story that we just read exists. We're in a uh, series in which we're looking at strange encounters with Jesus. And the goal is to let the strangeness of the encounter wake us up to the reality of who Jesus is. And this story we just read is strange. Because first of all, it's not even an encounter between a human being and Jesus. This is a direct encounter between Jesus and the devil, the very incarnation of evil. And second of all, if you grew up in church or maybe grew up reading the Bible, um, this story is so familiar to us that we think we already know what it's all about. We think, oh, the big lesson here is that when you're tempted by the devil, you quote scripture at him. That's the lesson. Now, here's the thing. That's true. 
And we're going to talk about that this morning, but there's way more going on in this story. It's not only showing us how to face our struggle with evil, it's also showing us something incredibly important about Jesus. And if we don't see that, then we will ultimately be helpless in our struggle against evil. Why? Well, let's find out by seeing three things in this passage this morning. We're going to see our struggle with evil, the defeat of evil, and lastly, what we need to do it. Okay? Our struggle with evil, the defeat of evil, and what we need to do it. So first, our struggle with evil. And let me just say right off the bat, I know that as modern people, you know, this whole idea of the devil, we struggle with that. But if you're willing to entertain the possibility that there's such a thing as supernatural good, that's God, would you be willing to entertain for just a moment the possibility that there could be such a thing as supernatural evil? If there is a devil, how does the devil try to get to us? What would be the main strategies that he tries to use against us? Well, this story shows us. It begins right before Jesus is about to commence his public ministry. And so it says that the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness, and then it says that for 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, here's the first big thing we need to see. The devil is not trying to get Jesus to do what we would call bad things, like killing or stealing or lying. You notice he's not trying to get Jesus to break any of the Ten Commandments or anything like that. So, for instance, the first temptation, it's a good thing. Turn this stone into bread. Bread is a good thing. We need food to live. Or the second temptation, um, to rule over all the kingdoms of the world. Now, obviously for you and for me, power can be a very dangerous thing. But Jesus is the king of the whole world. So for Jesus, this is a good thing. Or the third temptation, um, the devil tells Jesus to throw himself off the temple and God will rescue him. Basically, the devil's saying, hey, Jesus, you should put all of your trust and hope in God. That's a good thing. All of these things are good things. What's going on here? The problem with each of these things is that no matter how good they are, um, Jesus would have to disobey God in order to get them. So, for instance, turning stones into bread, that's, that would be Jesus using his power for himself when God said Jesus should use his power for others. Or ruling over the kingdoms of the world, that's a good thing. After all, Jesus is the king of the world. But the devil's trying to get Jesus to do it without going to the cross, which is the very reason that God sent Jesus to earth in the first place. Or the third temptation, to trust God to rescue you when you're in harm's way. That's a good thing. But there's a big difference between trusting God to rescue you when you fall in harm's way and demanding that God rescue you when you purposefully put yourself in harm's way. Friends, at the very heart of all of these things is the temptation to take some good thing and make it more central in your life than God is. The devil is not necessarily trying to get you to do bad things. He's trying to tear you away from God. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. I mean, um, not once, but twice, the devil begins a temptation by saying, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. 
or throw yourself down from here. In other words, the devil's not trying to get Jesus to doubt whether he's the son of God. He's taking that for granted. The devil's trying to get Jesus to doubt whether God really loves him, really cares about him, really has his best interests at heart. He's fomenting rebellion. That the main goal of the devil is is to try to break your relationship with God. That's always the way the devil works in our lives. It's to try to get you to break your relationship with God, to take your own happiness and your own destiny into your own hands and break your relationship with God. The true heart of evil is to take some good thing and make it more central in your life than God. And whenever we do that, it breaks our relationship with God. One of the most vivid illustrations of this, at least for me, is from the Broadway show Wicked. It tells the backstory of the Wizard of Oz, and the main person, the main character is Elfie. She's the Wicked Witch of the West. But in the show, Elfie isn't wicked. She's actually the hero of the show. The real villain in the show is the Wizard of Oz himself. He puts himself out there as this all-powerful, all-benevolent ruler, but in reality, he's nothing but a selfish fraud. And so at the end of the first act, Elfie has this song she sings called Defying Gravity. And she begins by singing to her best friend, Glinda. She says, something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through playing by the rules of someone else's game. I'm through accepting limits because someone else says they're so. At the heart of her song is this quest for happiness. In fact, all the townspeople, they kind of form a chorus in the show and they're always singing out, I hope you're happy. I hope you're happy now. Because for Elfie, the only way that she can be happy is if she's free to define herself. The only way that she can be happy is if she's free to determine her own happiness, her own destiny, without any boundaries, without any limits. Does that sound familiar? That is the narrative of our culture. That you must be free to define yourself. That the only way you can be happy is if you're free to define yourself without any boundaries, without any limits, even God's. Now listen, we've got to say this. Um, one of the best things that has ever happened in the history of our world is our modern emphasis on individual dignity. That's one of the best things. That's a good thing, speaking of good things. That's what made the civil rights movement possible. It's what's made Black Lives Matter and Me Too and the Pride Movement possible. This emphasis we have on individual dignity in our culture. In fact, the reason we um, emphasize that so much in our culture is because of the influence of Christianity in our culture for the last 2,000 years. But there is a huge difference between honoring individual dignity and worshiping individual autonomy. And yet that is exactly what our culture does. And so in the show, as Elfie's singing this song, the guards rush the stage to take her prisoner because she's a rebel. But what she's really doing is embracing her inner power. She's embracing her inner deity. And so before the guards can get to her, she ascends high up into the air with beams of light shooting out of her. And the sheer force of the vision um, forces the guards down onto the ground. And she starts to sing, to those who would ground me, take a message back for me. Tell them how I am defying gravity. And soon I'll match them in renown. And nobody in all of Oz, no wizard that there is or was, 
is ever going to bring me down. And the whole time, the townspeople keep crying out, I hope you're happy. I hope you're happy now. Friends, I will tell you, I find it impossible to watch that without weeping. Because every time I see it, to me, that is a picture of what we do to God and what our culture tells us we must be. The real tragedy, though, is that the one against whom we rebel is no mere fraud, but the God of the universe who created us and who loves us. The main goal of the devil is always to get in your ear and tell you, look at this good thing. God's trying to keep you down. He doesn't really want you to have this. But you deserve it. You should get it. You should take it for yourself. You should be defying gravity. You should take this good thing into your life. And what happens is it always breaks our relationship with God. The true heart of evil is always that we would take some good thing and make it more central in our life than God. And every time we do that, what it does is it breaks our relationship with God. And that leads to our second point. We've seen our struggle with evil, but secondly, we need to look at the defeat of evil. Because here's where uh, the familiar part of the story comes in. Every time that Jesus is tempted by the devil, he quotes scripture at the devil. The way that Jesus defeats evil in his life is by, it's through the word of God. Now, here's what this means and why it's so powerful. Tim Keller, the great preacher and writer in New York City, actually is very famous for talking about this. Um, He gives a thought experiment. So imagine, you know, most situations in your life, you have an opportunity to choose how you're going to respond to that. You've got the time to think about it. You're always going to try and put your best self forward, You know, it might take a little discipline, but you've got the time, you pull yourself together, and you always want to put forward that best version of yourself that you think you should be. But when you're under pressure, when you're under stress, when you're in agony, when you're in pain, you don't have the time to pull yourself together. Who and what you are just comes out without you thinking about it. Now, you look at Jesus here in this passage, and you see what's happening. He's starving. He's weak. He hasn't eaten for days. Now here comes the devil. (laughs) He's trying to get Jesus to take his own happiness and his own destiny and into, into his own hands, to break his relationship with God. Jesus is under incredible pressure here. And and when you really turn the screws on Jesus, what comes out? Scripture. When you press Jesus, when you squeeze him, out comes scripture. So look at what he does. He quotes. From Scripture, humans shall not live by bread alone. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When you really put the pressure on Jesus, what comes out is Scripture. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 6. Jesus' whole life was saturated in Scripture. I mean, here he is in the desert. He's starving. He hasn't eaten for days, but Scripture is his bread. Scripture is his nourishment. It's his whole life. His whole life was saturated in Scripture. And it's not just in the wilderness, by the way. I mean, it's all of his life. In fact, at the very end of his life, at the greatest moment of agony, when he's hanging on the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting Scripture. And Tim Keller says, you know what this means? Is that when you cut Jesus open, he literally bleeds Scripture. 
Jesus' whole life was saturated with Scripture. He's like a sponge. You squeeze him and outpours Scripture. And because of that, the devil doesn't have any power over him. Evil doesn't have any power over him. Why? Here's why. It's because the words that go deepest inside of you have the most power over you. The words that go deepest inside of you always have the most power over you. Every single one of you, there are words that have gone into your life. It's oftentimes when you were very young. And those words have power over you. Why? Because they went in deep. And no matter how hard you try, those words control you. No matter how hard you try, so much of your life is controlled by those words. Remember we said our life is a story, and and, and a huge part of our story, your story has been shaped by the words that went in deep, and those words have power over you. For instance, why is it you're so vulnerable to criticism, or anxiety, or compulsive self-destructive behavior, or the need for power, or control, or comfort, or for people to think you're perfect? Why is that? It's because the words that go deepest inside of you have the most power over you. Friends, what if there was a word that could get down inside of you and go so deep that it would undo all of those other words? A word of love and affirmation and encouragement and delight. A word that could go down so deep that it would not just counter all those other words, but conquer all those other words. How different would your life be if you had a word like that deep down in your soul? I read a story recently about a little baby boy who was born with a facial deformity. Because this was at the beginning of the 20th century in a small Midwestern town, the parents thought that the child was cursed. So they hired a young immigrant girl to take care of the baby because they didn't want to have anything to do with him. Now, this girl loved that baby, and she would whisper to him all the time, I see you, I love you, you are beautiful. In fact, she had a song that she would sing to the baby over and over several times a day. But eventually what happened when the child was five years old, the, the, the pressures and the financial strain of it all forced the children, it didn't force the parents, but it compelled them to put the child into an institution, which is something that happened quite a bit in, in that time in history. And right before um, they tore the child out of the immigrant girl's arms to put him in the institution, the last thing that she was able to do was sing that song one more time to her little beloved child. Now, this child grew up in this institution, and the only thing he remembered about this girl who cared for him was her name. All the other memories, everything else was buried under the living hell of of everything that he suffered in that institution. And the only words that meant anything to him in life were words that said, you were unlovable, you were unnecessary, you were unacceptable. He grew up hating himself and believing that everybody else hated him, including God. And so one day, when he was 18 years old, he was finally allowed to leave the institution. And the first thing he did was he grabbed a handful of pills that he'd saved up. He walked to the top of a high hill, and he was going to kill himself. But before he did that, he shouted out. He said, God, why have you hated me so much? Why? I, I tell you what, I am going to do you the favor of ending your disgust with me by ending my own life 
But before he could swallow the pills, at that moment, he heard a voice singing like it was right next to him. And the voice was singing, God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, my child, are loved. And he looks around like, where's this voice coming from? But there was nobody there. And again, he heard the voice singing, God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, my child, are loved. He was so shocked, so shaken, but also so moved and transformed by that, that he put the pills in his pocket, walked down the hill, and actually ended up becoming a pastor for the rest of his life, ministering God's love and mercy to other people. Years later, when he was old and retired, he found out that the girl, the only thing he remembered about her was her name, found out that she was actually still alive, and so he arranged to have her come visit him. And even though he only remembered her name, as soon as he looked into her eyes, she said to him, hey, do you remember that song that I used to sing to you when you were just a baby? God's mercy is wide, God's love is deep, and you, my child, are loved. And all of a sudden, he realized that was the song that saved his life. That was the song he heard on the hill because that was the song that she sang to him that he heard in his heart when he was just a child. And he realized that all this time that it was really God singing that song to him. God singing the words of this song, the words that went in so deep that they had the power to undo the power of all of the other words in his life. Friends, the deeper we take God's word into our life, God's love into our life, the more power that has in our lives to undo all the other words in our life. If Jesus needed to saturate his life with God's word, how much more do we? And if God's word had that much power in Jesus' life, how much power would it have in yours? Well, that leads to our last point. We've seen our struggle with evil, and we've just seen the defeat of evil. But lastly, we need to see what we need to do it. Because if we just stopped right here, here's where we're at. We're saying, hey, look at Jesus. Isn't he a wonderful example of how to live? You take God's word into your life, you go out to face the devil, and you meet the devil, you meet that struggle with evil, and you triumph over evil, right? Jesus is a great example. You know what that is? That is a very religious way of living, Here are the principles, here are the practices. You take them into your life, you do good, and if you do a good enough job, then God will love you and accept you and bless you. The problem is, no matter how deeply we take God's word into our life, no matter how hard we try to obey, God's work in our life is always a process. We're never gonna be perfect in this life. That means that when you fail, not if, but when you fail, what do you need at that point? Because here's what's going on. The devil came to you the first time with, a, with tempting you with a lie. He said, hey, God's trying to keep you down. But here's this really good thing. You deserve this. You should have this. And so you take it. <laughs> you do it. But then what happens? The devil comes back to you and says, how could you call yourself a child of God? How could you do something like that? How could you possibly believe that God would love you? You're nothing but a failure. First, the devil comes and tempts you with a lie, but then he comes and condemns you with another lie. What do we need when that happens? Because yes, Jesus is our example. 
It, absolutely he is. He is showing us how to live. But if Jesus is only our example, then ultimately we're left to live our lives and struggle against evil in our own power. And our power is never enough. We need something more. What is it? Well, this story shows us. If you are a little bit familiar with the Bible, you may have recognized some elements in this story that seemed just a little bit familiar. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, here's what's going on. Centuries earlier, the book of Exodus tells the story of how God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 4, God sends his representative Moses to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to say, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go that he may serve me. Israel is God's son. God leads Israel, his son, out of slavery. And then where does God lead Israel? Into the wilderness. How long are they there? 40 years. What's happening while they're there? They're being tested so that they could serve God. And and what's the outcome of that test? They fail. Israel is God's son led into the wilderness for 40 years, being tested by God so they can serve him. But they fail the test Are you starting to see what's going on in this passage now? Are you starting to understand what's happening here? Because this is a replay of the Exodus story. This is a replay of Israel's story. But this time, um, Jesus is the true son of God, led into the wilderness for 40 days, being tested by God. But unlike Israel, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the ultimate Israel who instead of failing the test like we do, Jesus passes the test. Friends, here's what all of this means. Yes, Jesus is our example for how to live, but we need more than an example because we know what we're supposed to do. The problem is we don't do it. We can't do it. We don't have the power to triumph over evil in our own strength. That's the story of world history right up until this very moment. And it's the story of your life too, isn't it? We need more than an example. What we need is the power of someone else to come into our lives. We need more than just an example. Somebody standing outside of our story, giving us an example of how to live and saying, now you live this way too. What we really need is a champion, somebody who can come inside of our story and do for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's the gospel Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to earth. You know, the Garden of Eden and the story of Israel in the wilderness and the story of you and me, it's all the same story. It's the story of our struggle with evil. That's what the story is. But Jesus is the one who descends into the struggle of our story so that he could lift us up into the triumph of his story. That's the gospel. Jesus is the one who descends into the struggle of our story so that he could lift us up into the triumph of his story. How did Jesus do that? Well, you may have noticed at the very end of this passage, the last thing it says is that when the devil had finished all of this tempting, he left Jesus until an opportune time. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase. What does that mean, an opportune time? Here's what this means. At the very end of his life, Jesus ends up in a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a replay of the Garden of Eden. 
We didn't talk about this earlier, but in many ways, this story is also a replay of the Garden of Eden. When the, when the devil comes to the first human beings and says, hey, did God really say that you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? Really means God can't really love you. God doesn't really care for you. God really doesn't have your best interests at heart. And the first humans failed that first test, just like Israel failed their test in the wilderness. Jesus comes to another garden at the end of his life, the Garden of Gethsemane. This is Jesus' final struggle, his ultimate test, his ultimate struggle. Jesus prayed to God the Father and said, God, Father, if there's any other way for me to save the world without going to the cross, what a test. What a struggle. And yet Jesus prayed, nonetheless, not my will be done, thy will be done. Friends, on the cross, Jesus descended into the struggle of our story so that he could lift us up into the triumph of his story. Jesus descended into our weakness so that he could lift us up in his strength and power. You know, tragically, our world is full of stories, daily stories about little children who fall into wells. Just yesterday, that I had already written this sermon. I've, I read another story, maybe you did too, about a little boy in Morocco who was down a well for four days and tragically they, they weren't able to get to him and he perished. There was another story about another little child about eight years ago who fell down, this time a very narrow pipe in a village in Romania. And it was all over the news at the time, like all of these stories are, because for hours they were trying to figure out a way to get to this little child who was trapped deep down this very narrow little pipe. The problem was the pipe was so narrow that nobody could actually get down there to get to the child. The big problem that they were trying to figure out was how to find somebody who could squeeze themselves down into the pipe, somebody who could, as it were, make themselves small enough so that they could get down and be with the child in the pipe. The other part of the problem, though, was that they also needed someone who was strong enough to lift the child up out of the pipe. Finally, a teenager came forward and said, I'll go down. And so they tied a rope around his feet and lowered him headfirst down the pipe, and he descended deep down into the pipe so that he could be with the child. But then he was also able to grab hold of the child and lift him up out of the pipe. Friends, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus, instead of defying gravity, the very creator of gravity, descended into our world, descended. He became small. He became weak. He became human. Jesus descended down into the pipe so that he could be with us in our struggle. On the cross, Jesus was pressed. Jesus was crushed. Jesus descended into the struggle of our story so he could lift us up into the triumph of his story. Don't you see the Garden of Eden? It's all about Jesus. Israel's struggle in the wilderness, it's all about Jesus. Your struggle, my struggle with evil, it's, all of it is pointing to Jesus. All of scripture is about Jesus. In other words, the word of God is not just something that Jesus takes into his life. Jesus is the word of God, who when you bring him deep inside of your life, he's the word, he's the love, he's the delight and the affirmation that you need. He's the one who comes into your story, who's with you in the middle of your pipe, in the middle of your struggle, so that he could be with you there, so that you're not facing your struggle with evil all by yourself and in your own power, but you've got the one who has all power and strength with you in the pipe so that he could lift you up out of the pipe. Friends, take that word 
into your life and let him be with you in the middle of your struggle so he could lift you up in the triumph of his story. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. This morning, that you are a God who created this world, but you do not stand aloof and apart from this world. You entered into the story of this world. You love us so much, Lord, that even though the devil comes, wants to get in our ear and tell us not only that you don't care about us, he wants to condemn us, but Lord, you're the one who comes. Bring that deeper word, Lord. Bring the word of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the reality of Jesus more deeply into our, li- into our lives, Lord. The more deeply that word, Jesus, comes into our lives, the more power you, Lord Jesus, would have in our lives, through our lives, and for our lives. Help us in our struggle against evil, Lord. Send us out into the world so that we could serve you the way you intended and created your people to serve you, now no longer in our own power and strength, but in the power and strength of our Lord Jesus, who entered our story so that he could lift us up into his story. For We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.